Welcome to the Reclaiming the Image Black podcast. I'm your host, Kareem J. Daniels. And this week in the studio, I have Mr. Paul Willis. What's up, what's up, people? So how you doing there, sir? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a busy few days. Uh, I just got back in town from Texas where <laughs> it's almost as if the corona never existed. It's kind of ridiculous there. Man. Um, but I, I was out there to kind of visit a couple of college buddies and uh, just had a good time. Um, didn't do a whole lot of like extra Texas stuff, but it was good to kind of see them yeah. uh, for, for a bit. So, um, but now that I'm back in town, it just feels like everything is just like flying, right? <laughs> Man, you may have been the busiest person during COVID that I know. <laughs> No, I mean, it's it's wild because, you know, when it first happened, I was in San Francisco the night that the NBA shut down and I was ready to perform at a show. And I thought, like, my show might get canceled. Um, and it didn't. And I remember coming back home thinking, I have no idea how this is going to affect the rest of the world, but I'm just going to, like, wait and see. And um, I ended up watching, like, Marvel movies for three weeks on my couch. <laughs> And before I did anything, you know, I I was at the Kings game when it shut down. Oh yeah. Like, so, um, my person who gets me tickets for work, she didn't get the right, she didn't get tickets for that game. And so her way of making it up to me was to give us tickets. Um, it's like a secret level Mm -hmm. (laughs) where they give you like a three course meal or four course meal. And like and the, the sweet level is no, it's even, more, Oh, it's like, it's more secret than the sweet level. Is it like the bottom, the bottom, like VIP every, it's the top or was the top, top right, VIP. Yeah. Okay. So you, so there's a sweet level and then there's like a section where you sit up front. Like I said, they bring you like a four course meal. You get something during the pre pregame first quarter, uh, second quarter, third quarter, you get your dessert. So you get like a full, Experience. I don't know where that place is in the arena. I'll have to find it, bro. I didn't know it even existed <laughs> until until then. And then, um, so we're sitting there, and you know, I'm on Twitter while we were watching. And then the next thing they're saying is there's gonna not gonna be a game because everything that jumped off in the NBA jumped off because the officials uh, that were working the Kings game, I think one or two of those officials had been at the game where Rudy Gobert tested positive. Oh. And so I think that team came to Sacramento, and then that was when everything shut down. And that was when the world shut down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just I just remember that feeling of, like, not knowing. Yeah. And not being able to plan and – I had just like quit my job maybe like a few months, like not even like six months before like the pandemic. Right. You know, and I, I started consulting full time and I was like, oh, well, I can't even do the same things that everybody else is doing <laughs> right now. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, make a way during this time. And, uh, you know, I have a bunch of different kind of gifts and talents and, a large part of it is just staying creative and using my creativity to stay busy. So that's been, that's been fun and cool, but also like really stressful <laughs> too. Um, I like to refer to that as the power of broke. And yeah. that's not mine. That's Damon Johns. Cause he has a book called the power of broke, 
But in the book, he talks about how being in that position, all of the famous people that have become famous because when they were in that position, that's what they did. They was like, I don't have a choice. So I got to do what I got to do. Yeah. I feel like it's been like that for the majority of my life. I think when there was a time in my adult life, I think when I was 25, I got my first like salary job. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, this is like real money. Um, And, you know, and then I kind of found that like sense of stability and kind of grew over time. Uh, But every other like year of my life, it was like, how do I make pennies stretch? How do I, you know, circumvent this, create something new out of that? And isn't it funny how you can make $20 last longer than you can make 200? Oh, my God. (laughs) It's so real. It's it's such a real thing. Yeah. yeah. So um, for the audience that doesn't know Paul, because we're talking because we know each other. Yeah. But for my audience who doesn't know Paul, Paul is an activist. He is an educator. He is a hip hop artist. And now he's a filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> and a consultant. Um, so tell the people what you you're, you consult on so that mm-hmm. they're aware. Yeah, I consult uh, on diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. So a large part of my work is is really focused on helping people understand issues around like race, uh, gender, class, uh, sex, uh, you know, abilities, the whole nine. Um, that's not me, right? I don't even know where I put it at, so we're going to ignore it. That's all good. We're going to ignore it. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, So those are some of the things that I I consult around and helping people understand that so that, you know, their workplaces, schools, or organizations can just become, uh, you know, more diverse, more inclusive, more equitable. Um, I I think that the way that our world has grown in terms of technology and everybody coming closer together there's also this generational gap and divide in terms of like value systems and, and people's belief systems. So, you know, there's a lot of miscommunication and a lot of misunderstanding that happens in whatever way I can work to be a bridge, you know, for that. Then that's, you know, really what I work to do. Uh, we know that there's systemic oppression and we know that that takes a lot of different forms. So any work to kind of dismantle that too is work that I, I want to help people get to. But a lot of that work requires like trust and faith and belief that, you know, the people that you're working with, um, that they, that they want the same things, that they value the same things. And that's, that's the tough part because when you have people from different backgrounds, that's not always the case. Those cultural nuances that don't ever get talked about, you know, um, there are some people who've never had a social justice conversation in their life and, They've never had to. Right. You know, so I help people in the kind of introduction of those ideas and concepts and and understanding that. But then, you know, kind of moving beyond that, then action planning for like what specifically can we do, um, you know, to to get better and create a a new kind of culture where uh, people feel appreciated, acknowledged and respected for who they are. So that's a huge part of my work and I've had an opportunity to work with some really like cool people and organizations, everyone from like uh, Metro Edge, which is the young professionals group through the Chamber of Commerce to the Sacramento Bee, 
um, worked with like a nonprofit law firm and a whole bunch of folks. So it's been really cool to do that kind of work. Right. And then your background is education because one of the things that we did together was um, I spoke at a school for you and you were running, was it city? City year. Yeah. They're an education nonprofit. Uh, They place teams of AmeriCorps members into schools to be tutors and mentors for students. And I was managing one of the teams at that school site. And that was an important thing. Every black history month, um, I wanted our students to know that there are people who are not necessarily like athletes and rappers and, you know, the kind of the stereotypical images that people see. Um, But there are doctors and lawyers and business people and contractors and like all of these folks that our students can also grow up to be. You pretty much have described one of my mission statements for the podcast is so that those people can get their stories told. And to be honest with you, if you didn't have the other parts of the background that you had, I might not have booked you because I didn't want a hip hop artist. Mm-hmm. I didn't want an athlete or entertainer. I wanted people regular, not saying that they're not regular people, but yeah. I wanted, I, I wanted everybody outside of that box. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get it. I absolutely understand. I, I grew up right in a neighborhood uh, it was predominantly Latino, right? Uh, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Cuban, and my family was Jamaican, but I, I definitely had this like very black experience growing up right? and kind of learning what it meant to be black from like all of my friends. Like I wanted the same things that all of my like students wanted, right? It was like, oh, like I want to be a rapper. I want to play in the NBA. I want to be in the movies and on TV and all that kind of stuff. But what I realized kind of over time was um, there are those pathways for people who are like extremely talented and extremely lucky. Right. right? But those aren't the only options for you. And I had amazing mentors and people who helped to guide me along the way to really understand that. Um, But I, I wanted to really just like pursue my passions and contribute something positive back to the community and to help kids who were like me, who maybe were trying to figure it out. Um, so that was a big part of my journey too. Right. And the other part of um, the other reason that I wanted you was because not only do you do hip hop, but you use it towards education. And that's a, I don't, don't want to say it's a new field, but for a lot of people that are listening, it's a new field. Um, so the fact that you're using that as a way to meet the kids where they are and, and bring them in to other things um, that was important for me, for you to be here. Yeah, uh, I think that hip hop is one of the most transformative tools that I've ever seen in action. Um, and I think that the thing that makes it really special is part of the culture, no matter what part of hip hop you decide to kind of fit in, whether that's like you want to be in rap or you want to uh, be a hip hop dancer or you want to be an artist or you want to be in fashion or whatever. Right. You have this like freedom and self-expression and that knowledge of self that kind of drives, you know, your your creation is is an important thing. So for me, I've seen so many people kind of find their voice through the music side of it. Right. Because you're writing the lyrics, you're telling stories and there's there's that piece of it. But when you recognize as the same kind of power and, and when you own your narrative and you have that autonomy 
tell your story. That same narrative exists in, you know, graffiti in in fashion and dance and all these other spaces. So um, it can really transform one's sense of self. And then beyond that, it has the power to transform community too, because you can create these spaces that include so many different types of people. You know, I've seen people rap in Spanish and uh, just a whole bunch of different languages, right? And they all will be in the same space. I, I went to an international b-boy competition here in Sacramento, and they had dancers from like Korea and China, Germany, Spain, all these different places, um, you know, and they were battling and they were all kind of doing some of the same moves, some that were like completely unique and different, but they had a language through the art form to be able to communicate with each other. And uh, it was a really special experience. And so I think that it's beyond just events, there's opportunity to kind of build a culture around community building. And that's how I like to use hip hop. You know, so I've done things like hip hop chess and um, hip hop basketball, just create spaces where the community can come together outside of just music to get to know each other. Right. And then we tend to forget the other aspects of hip hop. Uh, we forget about the b-boying. We forget about the fashion. Um, but there are opportunities within it that we often forget. Um, and actually, when I when I spoke at the school for you, uh, one of the the topic my topic was the opportunities within the credits. Is that when we watch movies, we stop at the end of the movie, and we'll watch like the first part of the credits to see what actors were in the movies. But when you watch past that. All of those are jobs and yeah. we forget that those are jobs. And, you know, like um, with the hip hop, I was going to use a, a, a CD liner to show the students all of the jobs that, you know, you got the photographer, you got the hairstylist, you got the makeup artist. All of those are opportunities that we don't necessarily see. Um, and so another p part of what I, why I'm doing what I'm doing is so that we can be aware of those opportunities. And so um, having you on was important to have somebody who could be able to speak to those opportunities, but everything else. Yeah, I, absolutely. Nothing gets done, you know, by myself. And while it's like my name on a whole bunch of it, um, I don't make beats. You know, I just started to get into like graphic design and creating my own flyers. But for a long time, I was like hiring other people to do that work. Um there's this myth that you have to be like completely self-sufficient and an expert at everything, but no, you don't, you know? And I think that that's where community building within the culture is really helpful because then you can uh, create collaboratives and a collective of people to help support whatever your vision is. And that's not just like a hip hop thing. That's like a life and a business thing. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're starting a business and you want to grow it, you leverage your network to, you know, access opportunities, maybe go to events or just different things to build what you're doing. So um, it's a skill that, you know, you can practice within the art form, but you can take it to do some really incredible things with it. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like we insulate ourselves and and lose out on opportunities because we do that. So that's uh, something that I think we as a people need to grow out of a little bit Yeah, and, and trust each other a little bit more with with uh, helping us get to the next level. Yeah. And I've seen some of my favorite artists, like the ones I look up to the most, 
grow and transform over time. Uh, you look at somebody like a Jay-Z or a Talib Kweli even, um, you know, they might have started in one particular direction, but they've grown now. And like, yeah, they're still doing music, but music isn't the only thing that they do. You know, they're active in business or in politics and all these different spaces, uh, podcasting or owning a company or brokering deals with like major corporations, like those types of things. When you realize that that came out of just the ability to talk yeah. over a beat, right? <laughs> like that's incredible. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a skill set that you learn over time, but you have to do that by like learning your business and mastering your craft. So whatever it is that folks choose to do, whatever career they decide to do, kind of have to give themselves to it to really master it. And then they'll start to recognize some of those opportunities where other people don't. Right. So how did Paul Willis get from Boston to Sacramento? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a great question. Um, it starts, I think in college. So, um, and even before college, I'll give people just a quick like background. So I grew up in Boston uh, there's no father's name on my birth certificate. My mom was addicted to like drugs and alcohol. I was born in 87. It's like the height of crack cocaine in the United States. Like folks who know that, like understand what that is. Um, so my grandmother raised me and my brothers and sisters, and I ended up going to a Jesuit middle school. I took kids from the inner city who showed promise on test scores, and prepared them for like New England prep day and boarding schools. And boarding schools out here in California mean something different than boarding schools back home. Boarding schools back east are for, like, the wealthy, the super wealthy, the elite. Like, you know, um, it's it's really outrageous. It costs more for a single year than, like, most colleges. Do, right. Right? In, in tuition for a high school. Um, so I, I went to a boarding school in Rhode Island, and I was one of two black kids in my class. Um, I definitely kind of locked in uh, for my academics because being away from – uh, you know, seeing what my mom was going through every day and having like a safe place where I had food, I had shelter and I didn't have to worry about any of the drama or the stress that comes with the streets and men in and out the house, like just all of this different stuff. So for me, I really had a chance to kind of lock in during high school when I went to uh, the College of the Holy Cross, which is another predominantly white institution. And it's because like, Nobody told me I could apply to like an HBCU or like anything like that. Like I, I didn't have anybody at my high school. I was in tune with like the needs of black students. Right. So I ended up going to the school that I thought was going to be like my number one school, like where I wanted to be. And literally like day one, uh, the person who was supposed to be my college advisor. I wish I remember her name, but I, I, I don't. Um, she was a chemistry professor. And I, I walk into her office and like, hey, I'm like supposed to meet with you at this time. I, uh, I don't really know what I want to do, but these are some of the things I'm interested in. I think I maybe want to major in sociology because these are my like things that I, I, I'm thinking about. And she goes, I don't know why they send kids like you to me. If you're not studying science, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Like, I don't know how to help you. And I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I go through like my entire college experience without having a conversation with anybody. I didn't know that you were supposed to go to the dean like or anything like I just didn't know. So 
like, well, I can figure out how to register for my classes. I'm smart enough. So that's what I did. And I ended up taking a class, it was like my junior year, called Education for Social and Political Change. And I think that that changed like the course of my life. First time I ever had a Puerto Rican like teacher or professor or anything like that. And he kind of told me uh, that in my college experience, I was taking a full course load, working three jobs, uh, coaching a basketball team, running a tutoring program, running an intramural program. I was like doing a lot. And he said, you know, if you want to serve your community in those ways, you can do that right now. If you don't feel like this place is for you, take some time, like take a year off, take two years off. It doesn't matter. Like you're not on anybody's schedule or timetable, like take some time, figure out what it is that you want to do or where you want to finish. And if it's still here, come back. But if it's somewhere else, go, go after it. Um, and I remember kind of leaving it's like middle of my senior year. Uh, and I was, I was looking for just an opportunity and that opportunity was city year in Boston. And I serve a city year that first year I was actually at my elementary school. Like my principal was still there after 20 <laughs> years. Like some of my teachers were still there and they remembered me. Like it was wild, but uh, it was an amazing, like full circle opportunity. And it kind of affirmed that that's exactly where I needed to be at that time. So I did a you know first year as an AmeriCorps member, and then I came back to serve as like a, a leader um, the second year, and then uh, I joined their staff over the summer, helped to put together a national like training and leadership conference, and started feeling like oh I have like a bunch of skills like I think I'm ready to go back to school, uh, maybe I'll apply to you know and put in my papers. I had a little bit of AmeriCorps money saved up. So I was like, so money's not like as super big of a concern now uh, as it was. So I can just like really kind of lock in and focus. <laughs> but my educational award didn't clear on time for the fall semester. Oh, So the registrar was like, yeah, we can't like put you anywhere on campus or have you sign up for any classes because you're not like officially a student until this like financial stuff clears. And I'm like... So what do you want me to do? She's like, uh, apply again in the spring. Oh, <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. Well, I'll just get a second job and figure out my life and like save up money. And, and in that process, uh, I went back to city year and I was like, well, Hey, do you have like any temporary or part-time positions? Like I just loved what I did here and maybe I can help manage community events or something. And a friend of mine who I was talking to just shared, he was like, well, would you be interested in moving to Sacramento and have a startup site there? And I was like, what is that? <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, about eight to 10 months, you know, you'll be out there only maybe 200 people ever had started up a city or chapter. I was like, Oh, that sounds interesting. He's like, so you'll miss your like spring semester. But if that experience is anything like your fall, you know, experience in the office, just give them the time to, you know, figure all the paperwork stuff out and then go back in the fall and you'll have all of this amazing experience under your belt. If you don't like it in Sacramento, you can always come back home. Or if you really like it in Sacramento, you can stay there and maybe potentially like earn a staff position if that's something that you want. I was like, oh, all of those options sound really great. So, um, so I came out and, you know, not really, I didn't know anything. I knew like four things. I knew that the Kings played here. 
Y'all were in Northern California. I knew that the uh, governor was Arnold Schwarzenegger and the mayor was Kevin Johnson. That was it. <laughs> I, I swear to you, that was it. That was all I knew. Um, but I figured it out. You know, I threw myself completely into community building, uh, helping people really learn and understand what city year was. I got to meet people in nonprofit community and the education community and, uh, you know, government, like city council, neighborhood associations, all this stuff. I got to meet a lot of different kinds of people um, around Sacramento. And then I wanted to find like my hip hop community. Right. And right. Like, I, I was just starting to perform at open mics back home. I was like, where are the open mics? And uh, I, I remember walking into Fox and Goose <laughs> and people from Sacramento would laugh because this place is like a British pub, but they had an open mic, but their open mic. There's like four guys who look like Willie Nelson with banjos who like, yeah. Play at this open mic. And that's about it. Uh, and they were like, well, you should go to Soul Collective. Like, that's not that we don't want you here, but we think that you'll find like the kinds of people that you're looking for there. Um, and I met a bunch of artists there at Soul Collective and, um, you know, kind of building a, a friend base, uh, networking through work. I just really started to feel part of the community. So when I got, my first ever like salaried staff job as a manager for city. I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is like an opportunity. And yeah, I could go back to school, but if I have a job right now. Yeah. I was like paying that way. Then this is where I probably should be, you know? And, um, uh, I'm, my grandmother was a, a minister in the church, like big on faith and, and, and religion and just like signs and things like that. And she's like, look, like, you may not always understand like some of the choices or decisions or things that happen in your life, but when you receive blessings, like yeah. accept them, <laughs> you say, know, don't say, like run away from that stuff. Say thank you and keep it moving. Right. <laughs> you know, and wherever that puts you, just know that like, that's where you're meant to be. So yeah. um, that's kind of how I ended up here and like why I ended up staying, um, you know, there, I think early, you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, I think maybe I'll go back to Boston. Like, I'm not really sure. But after, like, that first year and then the second year, I was like, oh, I'm, like, deeper now into this community. There's no way that I see myself leaving. So that's kind of yeah. where I'm at now. Cool. Uh, tell people what AmeriCorps is real quick just so that yeah. they can understand. Yeah. AmeriCorps is a national service organization. So think, like, a domestic Peace Corps. I think that's probably, like, the best analogy. Um, but for other folks who like may not know what that is either, imagine like 18 year olds who go off to like the military, they serve their country, um, which is, you know, good for them. The education opportunities, financial opportunities, skill building, all that stuff. Uh, but if there was an opportunity for those same folks to stay at home and then do community service work, meaning, they're tutoring kids in schools. They might be running a particular kind of after-school program. They might be serving seniors, the homeless, or any number of things. Like, that's what AmeriCorps allows young people to do is give back to their community uh, for a year. And then they receive an educational award and a couple other benefits like food stamps and maybe a transportation pass for the city that they live in. Just, like, small things as make that uh, stipend stretch a little bit further. Okay. Um, but they don't get like a salary. It's not like a huge like payment. 
it's like you'll get just enough to live on. Um, and that year is really, you know, a not a, it's not a year that you are um, kind of taking a ton of stuff, right? Like I remember getting my salary job and I was like, okay, I can like buy a bed and <laughs> like a $200 TV and <laughs> like all of these things. But I like living on a stipend, you're like, okay, I need to manage my money. I can't like go out and party every weekend. I can't go to the Jay-Z Beyonce concert. I can't do all this stuff. Hey, like your first year in the military, you can't do any of that shit either. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's, 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 it's that kind of thing where, you know, you really like learn what sacrifice is Yeah, and you learn really why service and giving back to the community is really important. Um, and why it's important for you to make it really like show up as a role model and make responsible decisions in a whole nine. So, uh, for me, it was uh, my first year being back at my elementary school, living in my community. Like, it, it was a full circle experience. I know not everybody's experience is exactly like that. But for me, it just affirmed, like, okay, these types of positive decisions are the kinds of things that I want for my life. So I'm going to keep choosing to do stuff like this. So why did you want to do that? Yeah. Um, education and community was always really important. My grandmother, you know, her her biggest thing, my family's Jamaican, right? So, like, we have hella jobs, and we work really hard. And That's black like, people in the South, man. Yeah, and just, like, <laughs> education is, like, super important. So, for her, she, you know, she stressed knowledge is power. And once you have that, like, knowledge and power, like, that's something nobody can take away from you. Once you learn something, right, it's really difficult to unlearn that or to unknow what you know. Um, so, that's their, you know, that's the first part. And then what she wanted me to do was like get a job, make a whole bunch of money and like give money back to the community. And while I never got like rich, right. Or famous from this stuff, it was, you know, I, I committed to, you know, giving my like time, my energy and, and whatever resources I had to, to giving back to others. So um, I think that that's the biggest thing. Like my grandmother's a huge influence on me and, and, my moral compass really comes from her. So that's really what attracted me to work, but also kind of seeing the way that my mom struggled with drugs and alcohol and that kind of stuff. I knew I was like, I'm never going to be a gang member, never going to sell drugs. So right. I need to do something that's different from what everybody else is doing. Um, and that's what really led me down this path. So um, what led you down the music path? My sisters were always big into like R&B, 90s music. So we heard a lot of like Mary J. Blige and Mariah Carey and SWV and Lauryn Hill. And I got introduced to rap through that music, right? Hearing You're All I Need and Method Man rap, hearing Biggie rap, you know, next to some of these R&B artists. Um, and just that whole era, I think, really inspired me hearing the Fugees and how incredible the score was, right? Like yeah. that kind of stuff really stuck with me. Um, my friends wanted to rap in middle school. We were nerds. I definitely picked my rap name out of a, a math textbook. My, you know, my friends were picking names one day and we were in science class and someone's like, oh, I'm like, I'm nimble Stratus. <laughs> you know, it was like storm cloud. Um you know, we, we got to math class and somebody was like, oh, I'm going to be 
isosceles. Oh, that's, you know, that's weird, but okay. I think I want to be hypotenuse. That was my <laughs> middle school rap name, <laughs> sixth grade. Um, you know, but there was, there was a talent show and I wanted to rap and like fit in with, with my friends. My older brother was a poet and he used to write poems for girls in high school. I did uh, that. But he was writing them and giving in selling these like love poems to his friends to impress the girls that they wanted to, you know, date. So I saw him like making money using words. I was like, oh, that's cool. But I'm not writing love poems, man. That's for suckers. I'm going to like do something different. Don't and, ever, look, that's not for suckers. It wasn't. But, you know, I was 12. I was 12. I was, you know, 12, 13. And, you know, I was like reading books and going to school and like wanting to play basketball every day. Like that was the stuff I was rapping about when I was 12 years old, imitating the rappers that I was listening to on a radio or seeing on TV, you know. And, and it started just like, you know, I, th- I think the way that a lot of other you know, rappers or, or hip hop artists kind of get started. They just imitate the stuff that they hear until they find their voice. I think for me, uh, I had a mentor in middle school who saw my rap notebook and saw I was like full of it. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, man, like I, I saw that this is like your book, like you dropped it or whatever. I started like looking at some of the stuff in there. He's like, how come you don't write about yourself? Like, how come you don't? say anything about like who you are personally like what's like who are you does this how you want people to know you or like are we actually going to get to know the real you and i was like oh that's that's powerful (laughs) so i i think i i switched my like style from just rapping about whatever to i'm gonna be authentic and share more of my life through my my raps and um just work to develop that part of it over time so you know, I started rapping when I was 12, and I tell my students that I've been rapping for longer than some of you have been alive, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that gap gets wider and wider because, you know, you think about the ninth grader who comes in now, it's like, you know, it's it's it's, it's wild, but um, yeah, but that's, that's kind of where it started, it was just like, it was my social environment, way to fit in, it was part of the culture, and then, you know, I started to use it more intentionally as I grew as a person and my work in the community grew, I started to recognize, oh, okay, this music can be a tool for connection. And that's what I want is, is to connect with people. Yeah. Paul, Paul does music like he's Prince. <laughs> <laughs> he puts out five albums at a time. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I write a lot. I write a lot. Yeah. So talk about um, Wonderland, mm-hmm. your film. Yeah. I am... I was like, this dude put out a film during COVID. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I'm sitting up here trying to figure out what I'm going to do or if I'm going to have anything to do. And he done made a movie. Yeah. It's it's pretty, pretty wild. Um, But it's it's part of it's part of the entire package and and didn't it didn't start that way, you know, but it it ended up there. And I'm glad it did. Uh, Wonderland started three years ago. Because a lot of my conversations with folks in Sacramento, I'm like regurgitating my like life, my whole life story, right? And I explain I to people like well. this is Boston and like all this stuff, and I'm like, you know what? Like maybe there's a better way to do this. So I started kind of writing more personal songs 
um, songs that explain who my family was, what the environment was like, and that kind of thing. Um, and as I grew as an artist, I knew I like loved live music and live instrumentation. So I was working for three years to really find a good blend of the uh, band that would really fit. I'll pause for a second. Um, so um, I, I worked for three years to really like find a band that I thought would fit uh, the lyricism and everything I was kind of going for. So, you know, fast forward to now I'm like recording the album and kind of doing all that stuff. I was working with the BAP notes on the production for the majority of the album. Uh, I met Jeffrey from the band Hayes, who's incredible, and he produced a couple of tracks. Uh, a tribe quartet who I'm a huge fan of. I love all of those people. Yeah, they're like incredible, incredible musicians. So I have amazing musicality on the album. Um, but the the central like theme and concept is this idea that growing up, I never envisioned life outside of my neighborhood or life outside of my city. I didn't know what was possible for me. Um, and what I wanted my students and the kids that I serve to understand is that, you know, there's life outside of your block and there's life that's like bigger. And when you think about the movie, even Alice in Wonderland, you watch the whole movie and you see her kind of go into the rabbit hole and do all this stuff. At the end of the movie, she wakes up. The whole thing was a dream. She was allowed to dream. It was all, all a dream, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's wild to think that, Oh, some of us are allowed to dream. Some of us are allowed to see what's beyond. In Boston, there are a whole bunch of different train stations, bus stations where I had like meaningful experiences. But the one place I hadn't been to before was Wonderland. It's actually at the end of the Blue Line, which is maybe a couple stops after Logan Airport. So you could literally fly out of Boston having never seen Wonderland. Wow. Right? So I was like, oh, like this is like a really cool connection. Let me tie all of these different like themes and, and ideas together. Um, so the goal is to really shift the trajectory and the hopes and the dreams of uh, young people who are growing up in communities that were exactly like mine. I'm sharing my story and I'm reporting back from the other side, right? Like I've, I've been down the rabbit hole, now I'm back and let me share with you what that experience was like so you can navigate that a little bit better when it's your turn to do it. Um, when it was time to like really finish the album. It was a process it's, and it's expensive. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, the album itself, just the music stuff cost, uh, 5,800, right. you know, over the course of three years. And I didn't have the money to like finish it. I wanted to own all of the beats outright. I needed to pay my features and all this stuff. So I applied actually for funding through the black artist fund. And um, I, I won an award for like a thousand bucks that really helped me finish it. And my contract with the Sacramento Bee was it was another huge reason why I was able to finish the album, uh, which was really, really just incredible. So those ladies will actually be on next week. Oh, that's awesome. Great. Yeah. Shout out Faith. Um, shout out Maya Wallace and Neva and Kiara, Cloudy, like, all, all, of, all of the folks are, like, really incredible on that board. Delilah um, on, on on that board as well. Uh, Jessa, 
and um, Jackie. I don't want to forget anybody. <laughs> uh, they're, they're all just incredible black women who care deeply about our community and about artists here uh, and a whole bunch of issues around justice and equity. So I'm glad that they are guests on the show. Um, they, so they funded, uh, you know, me so that I could finish the album, which was amazing. And then, you know, when the second round of funding came up, I thought, okay, it might be cool to see if I can like do live performances of the album because I can't perform anywhere because it's COVID, you know? And I was like, you know, my, my big vision is, you know, band backup singers and these dancers to help express, you know, what, what this music really is. And I thought like that would be the end of like the video portion and maybe I can apply for funding to get it. Um, and I applied for funding and the budget I sent in was like for $4,000 and it was like not going to happen because they weren't giving away awards at that size. And um, what ended up happening was they connected me with a different funding source ah. for more money, which was incredible. It was something that like, I never would have heard about had it not been like they were in that space and doing that work. I never would have received uh, the $10,000 that I got to do the film. So it was, it was really incredible to, to receive that funding. Cause then what we did was we set aside a thousand dollars in scholarship money for a local dance program for kids from, you know, CV circle. If they, you know, couldn't afford for dance lessons during COVID, there was a pot of money for them to be able to, you know, receive lessons for the month. And, 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 and that would be really cool. Uh, Miss T's urban dance studio, you know, is, is incredible. And she's an amazing, amazing leader. Um, so we set aside a thousand dollars. So then we made the rest of the film with $9,000. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, uh, brought in a, a, a video director, brought in somebody to help score the film and, and work on the music, which was Jeffrey, uh, Daniel, who goes by mango Daniel on Instagram, uh, you know, was behind the lens. And then it was just this coordination of like, okay, we want these live performance shots, but we also want spoken word. We want these dance, you know, uh, scenes, but then we want the community that, uh, you know, that I had worked with for so many years uh, to be able to tell their story. You know, CV circles in this, this battle right now where, you know, they're, they're fighting against some of the forces of gentrification, Yeah, not necessarily from, you know, the mills, which is right next door, but the juxtaposition of, $300,000 condos and up right Yeah, next to the projects is like a huge, like motivating factor, for like city officials and other developers to say like, Hey, these buildings that have been around for since the forties, they need some renovation, right? Like let's uh, knock those down and let's like move some residents out, maybe give them the opportunity to move back in. And, and that's just like how like cities grow and change. But yeah, like when it's you're always not, at our expense. Yeah. And when you're not intentional right, about building relationships with those people and families, it might take you a year and a half to two years to rebuild all of that. Yeah. You're, you're going to lose contact with a lot of those folks. The numbers change in that community. Like every six to eight weeks, like you're not going to yeah. have that person's number or second or third number. Right. A after a while. So, um, you know, it, I wanted them to be able to share what it was like to be in that community to, uh, you know, what their hopes and dreams were 
for, for their kids who grew up in a community like that, um, what they feel like the responsibility is of other people outside their community, you know, to, to think about that community and all that kind of stuff. I wanted them to tell it. So we did these community interviews with a number of different folks who are residents, people who work there, um, and that kind of thing. And I wanted to just ask them the questions and remove whatever opinions or stuff that I had, right? Yeah. And and use this opportunity because I know people are gonna want to see the music and want to see these live performances, but use this opportunity to also then educate them about, hey, here's an issue that's going on right here in Sacramento that you should pay attention to. And, you know, I know that some of the people who will see the film are going to be power brokers, right, right, in our area. And if they get to hear from these folks directly, and that might shift some minds or change policy or people will think about or do things differently, then I've done my job. Right. Right. It's it's my responsibility to not just uh, tell the community story, but to uh, really help empower people's voices and elevate them by just sharing my platform. And I don't have a million followers. You know <laughs> what I mean? I'm not social media famous. Yeah. But um, I know enough folks to maybe make a difference. So that, that was kind of the, the whole method and, and, and the madness behind the album and, and the film and how those things came together. Um, and now I have an opportunity to really take the film to some really cool spaces like colleges, universities, museums, partner with businesses, I, excuse me. And to really have this conversation about how do we leverage hip hop for, you know, placemaking? How do we, you know, use hip hop or the arts in general to have these conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, um, how can hip hop shape policy? How can hip hop do all these different things that people just weren't considering before? So uh, we did an event with uh, the master's program at USF uh, and the educational leadership. It was a doctorate program at Sac State. You know, it's a joint effort. And I just did an event with the Harvard Graduate School of Education. They have a hip hop program there. Yes. So, you know, it's it's really interesting to see how this like idea kind of sprung up just as me as a kid from kid from the hood who kind of grew up, moved away, started to kind of dive super deep into the community is now like going out there and people are beginning to understand that, you know, these individual stories are really important and can help shape our communal story together. That is a we are in line with what we're doing. Um, the universe knows what it's doing better than what we do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to say that because we both thought, I thought you were supposed to be on the 30th. You came now. It, it, thank you too. I'm just <laughs> all I can say. Yeah. So um, we're going to uh, wrap it up here. So uh, here's your chance to give your commercial Oh yeah, let's do so it. Where can um, where can where can people find you? People can find me at Paul Willis is Hip Hop. That's my Facebook. That's my Instagram. That's my Gmail. That's my Venmo. That's my Cash App. <laughs> that's 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 everything. Just Paul Willis is Hip Hop. P A U L W I L L I S I S H I P H O P. That's me. All right. Uh, anything you got coming up? Um. There, there are a few things that, I, that I'm working on. 
you know, nothing's like solidified yet. I have a show, you know, Friday night at the Rush Room, which will be really cool. Um, but if the show is out before Juneteenth, then it'll be out before then. Awesome. Then I want to invite everybody to my gig in Napa. I have a friend. Uh, she's a black woman social media manager for some of the wineries out there. And she's putting together a Juneteenth out there. So we're trying to get more black music in Napa, looking to team up with a couple of the black wineries. There's only one black winery in Napa, but there's some black wine makers there. Right. So we're trying to kind of put the pieces together to figure out how do we shift and do more and uh, just have more representation in that space. So if you're free on Juneteenth and you want to get out of Sacramento for a little bit, come on down to Napa. Follow me on social media and you'll be able to find all the details for that event. So thank you again to Mr. Paul Willis. And next week we will have the ladies of what was formerly the Black Artist Fund, which is now the Black Artist Foundry next week uh, at this time. Um, thank you to Nate Darling for Darling New Media for use of the space. Thank you to my friend Kevin Fontana for the guitar on this track that we worked on together. Um, this has been Reclaiming the Image Black, where um, our motto is, we are not a monolith, but we are one. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>